What's up, everybody? Good evening. How's it going? How's it going? With this heat, I immediately regret uh, my apparel decisions. Uh, if I pass out, I've designated Emily to come up and finish. She doesn't know that. She's finding out right now. So if I pass out, just leave me here, and Emily will just come read my notes, okay? Scroggins already said it, but we're almost there, right? We've almost finished an entire academic year during a pandemic. If this is your first year in college, on behalf of anybody who's ever been in college, I'm so sorry. Usually it's a lot more fun. Hopefully in the coming weeks and months, it's going to return to being a little bit more fun. Uh, we've got this week and next week, so we'll just say it out loud. I know it. You know it. You've seen all the incredible people that have preached this semester, so we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, right? It's fourth quarter, coach is putting in the subs, and we're saying, we'll just throw James on stage and see what happens. Uh, it's very reminiscent of my high school days. Did anybody else, by raise of hand, play any sports, and you were a bench player in those sports? A couple of us, a couple of us, welcome. Uh, when I was in high school, my sophomore year, uh, if you can imagine me around the same height, but being about 50 pounds lighter than I am now. And you're thinking, that's not humanly possible. I promise it is. And it's as awkward as you think it is. Uh, I was very lanky and uncoordinated on the court. Uh, my school was a small private school. We didn't play very many sports. So there's a very small number of sports that I would maybe have had a chance at. And basketball just wasn't one of those. I loved basketball at the time. I loved watching basketball and playing. Just wasn't too great. Uh, the, it'd be a fourth quarter. Kind of like tonight, the coach would look down the line. It's like three minutes left. There's no way that I can blow the lead. And he'd look at me and my friend Chris, who is sitting next to me, who's now a dentist, if that gives you any indicator of his athletic ability. No offense to dentists. Uh, and he'd say, let's, let's throw him in. I, I actually remembered today, I wish I'd remembered before, I, I tried to find my high school yearbook because there's actually a picture in the yearbook for that year of the team during a game, and the whole team is in a huddle, and Chris and I are just on the bench, because there's no point in us being in the huddle, because we're not going to, like, it was not a game that we were going to go in, and I really wish I had that picture for you, because it's pretty funny. The end of that year, we actually, again, 1A private school, this is not impressive, we made it to the state tournament, right, it was a, it was a playoff tournament, and we got to travel, which was really fun, and we went to this college uh, coliseum. And so we walked in, and immediately what you could tell was the difference between the starters and the bench players, because the starters were so stoked. They went on the court, and they're like looking at how the ball bounces, and there was a clock above each basket, and there's like classic buzzer and red lights. They were stoked on it. And immediately, myself and the other bench players went over to the benches, and they had like NBA style, like seats that were like super cushy, and we immediately sat down, and we're like, yes, like... I, to this day, remember how stoked we were about the benches. So if you're ever wondering how to separate uh, basketball players by skill with ever, uh, without ever watching them play, just watch who runs and sits on the bench and who doesn't, you know? Uh, so this semester, what we've been doing, uh, if you've been listening, a few people from the stage have said that what we want to do is we don't want to just tear down bad theological ideas or, or the theological house that we proverbially live in. We want to build a new house. So what does that mean? I think what that means is that we need to have a critical mind. There's a difference between a critical mind and a critical spirit. A critical mind looks for what's true and what's right, and a critical spirit looks for what's wrong. So when we talk about building a better theological house, uh, we're not talking about uh, building something literally. It's a metaphor for revealing really 
what was there the whole time. And ultimately, what we want to do is to understand the reality that God has created for us to live in. If we hope to accomplish what God has asked all of us to do, that being the Great Commission, uh, if you didn't know, God's called us all uh, to go out into all the world and to make disciples. And if we want to do what we hope to do as Chi Alpha, and that's to be Christ's ambassadors, uh, Paul says it this way, he says, We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to him. So that's what we want to do on our campus, is we want to reconcile people to Jesus. And if we're going to do that, then we have to have a foundational understanding of how God created us and the rules that he put in place to govern the reality that we live in. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And what's cool about this is that Jesus always invites us into his work, right? We've just seen it. The Great Commission is exactly that. Jesus is inviting all of us to come alongside him and to reconcile people to him. And it's a privilege to get to do that. And it blows my mind all the time that Jesus trusts us with that. But what we see is that from the beginning, God designed the world with intent. God doesn't do anything on accident. He does everything with intent and purpose. And we were always a part of his design from the beginning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Uh, If you're not taking notes, you can write this down. God's laws are descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. God's laws are descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. We know that his laws are designed to protect us and ultimately to draw us closer to him. So tonight, we're going to look at how God designed us. We're going to look at a few of his laws and what we as humans have done in response to those laws. Uh, Before we do that, we'll pray. Jesus, would you help us? God, we pray that we would leave here understanding your character better, understanding your heart and and the reality that you've created, Jesus. We we say we need your help. God, would we leave here knowing you better? In your name we pray, amen. So before we go any further, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a pit stop in Genesis. Uh, If you've been here all semester, you're probably wondering why these guys talk about Genesis so often. Why is it that Scroggins has spent hours and hours studying it? Why is it that he gives up his Wednesday nights that he could spend with his family teaching about Genesis? It's because it's important. The concepts, the ideas, the motifs in Genesis help us understand God's character, and they reappear all throughout Scripture. Uh, Next semester, we're actually going to teach a class on Revelation. Uh, We figured we'd bookend it. Uh, We figure with enough time and study, we can figure out the exact day and time Jesus is coming back. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Uh, For legal reasons, and so I don't get fired, that was a joke. Uh, If anybody ever tells you they can do that, they missed a really important verse in Revelation. But here we are. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to go Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I think that's my favorite translation of that. Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So what we see is that God created man, and immediately invited us into fellowship with the Trinity. We see that he created us in his own image, so we're finite pictures of an infinite God, and we're the only part of creation that gets that honor. We know we were originally designed to be perfect in every way, 
So if we're going to figure out how we strayed so far from that perfection, we need to first understand who we are and the way which God has designed us. Man, like the Trinity, is comprised of three parts. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. And this is made clear by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, like God the Father, we have the ability to create by originating our own choices. Like the Holy Spirit, we are given the capacity to communicate and direct spiritual fellowship with the Father. Like the Son, we're given a body with the ability of physical senses. And so just like the Trinity or the whole Godhead act in harmony, our three parts were designed to act in unity. God designed us so that each part of us, each of those three parts, can enjoy the world that he created for us and ultimately enjoy eternity with him. One of the most important attributes God gave us is our moral nature. In the Bible, we see this described as uh, coming from our heart. And in the Bible, when it talks about your heart, often it's not talking about it in a physical sense. Uh, and it's used as an illustration of our ultimate choice of will. Our ultimate choice of will is the center and source of all of our actions. And it's the one thing most entirely under our control. We see that because God loves us, he doesn't force himself on us. God will never force himself on you. He loves you so much, he gives you a choice. And then you, when you boil all of life down, is really just a choice between two options. You can choose to be with God, and you can choose to be apart from God. Okay? So just as Adam and Eve were given the choice, each one of us is faced with that ultimate choice. So that leads me to the question, what happens if we choose poorly? Uh, I think if I were to, to pass away and for some strange reason they wrote a book about my life, which they won't, the title of that book would be what Richard preached about two weeks ago. It would just say, God doesn't call the qualified, a James Franklin story, and then you would flip it over and the back would just say, he chose poorly a lot. Uh, so for those of you who maybe haven't chosen poorly as many times as I have, I'll give you an example of what this looks like. In, I would say, 2012, 2013 right around the time I became a small group leader, uh, a bunch of us in resource decided we wanted to get all of our small group guys together and do something fun. Uh, some of us are also in this room. I won't call anybody out. But what we decided is something that would be fun would be to take a, a stupid game that a lot of college people play and in our head make it more fun and more safe. So if you've ever seen any kind of movie about college, then you've probably seen beer pong, right? It's a stupid game. You throw a ping pong ball into a cup, if you land it in the other team's cup, they have to drink it. So what we did in our infinite wisdom is we replaced the alcohol with monster energy drinks. Okay? And I'm not talking like today's like nice zero sugar monster energy. I'm talking like the original green monster that nobody drinks anymore. So much sugar. Here's a picture. Okay? I would estimate this, this is what we drank that night collectively. It's about 25 or 30 cans of monster and if you don't know anything, that's about almost four grams of caffeine. Not milligrams, but grams. And if you don't know about caffeine, that's too much caffeine for any of us to be ingesting. Okay? And here's where we went wrong. Uh, we, we did it in teams. And myself and my friend Lupe, who's now an, a police officer, an officer of the law, uh, 
both had partners who I, I won't name because they're not here to defend themselves, but at different points in this tournament-style bracket, uh, decided to be lame, and they didn't want to drink the monster anymore. So Lupe and I were, were faced with a choice, right? We could either choose wisely and just bow out of the tournament, or we could not only drink the cups that we were supposed to drink, but the cups that our teammates were supposed to drink. And Lupe and I continued to do this for the entire night. Uh, this was a lot of fun. We did this in my house uh, at, for a lot of, maybe the better part of a year. The only thing in my living room was a ping pong table, right? No furniture. We just had a ping pong table, which is pretty fun. All the girls are like, that's really dumb. But it was a lot of fun. So it didn't last forever. We got couches and other apartment accoutrement later. But... What, what was interesting is that we had so many people there, man. We had a guy that legitimately, my sweet, sweet friend David, who, was, who grew up in like a reserved home, didn't even drink soda. So you take somebody who's never had sugar and you give them not only so much sugar, Monster has like, I think 40 or 50 milligrams of sugar and caffeine. He was wired, but he was having a good time. And then you take Lupe and I, who we estimate probably consumed pretty close to a gram of caffeine each. Okay, so we chose poorly, and uh, by the end of the night, my friend Lupe had hallucinations while he was in the shower, and I peed neon. It's not a joke, that actually happened. So what we see there is an example of what it's like to choose poorly. In the future, we actually did play that game again, uh, the night before my friend Ryan got married, but we played it a safer, more wiser version because we had learned our lesson. But we see this, that... Adam and Eve were the first faced with the ultimate choice, right? To be with God or apart from God. And ultimately for Adam and Eve, they were the first to choose incorrectly. Uh, if we look in Genesis 3 verse 5, we'll see the devil feeds them a lie. And it's the same lie that he's repackaged and fed to people for generations. But this is the devil talking to Adam and Eve. And he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, it being the fruit that God told them not to eat, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what that lie is, and that lie that's been repackaged to us, is that we could choose to be apart from God and live outside of what's real reality and there won't be any consequences. That we could be the masters of our own destiny and choose what we do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. And because they listened to the lie that Satan fed them in the garden and they disobeyed God, they... Uh, they brought sin into the world for the first time. And we talked about this, uh, Scroggins talked about this earlier this year. We're going to do a brief flyover review of sin. And so to understand what sin is, I think it's important to first understand what sin is not. Okay? So number one, sin is not natural. Sin is not natural. We were never designed to sin. Number two, sin is not unavoidable. Sin is not unavoidable. A lot of times people who love Jesus and believe that God is good will also believe that it's, his laws are impossible to keep. Uh, and when we say God is good, we're not talking about like when I'm like, hey man, how are you doing? You're like, I'm pretty good. He literally embodies goodness. Without God, there is no goodness in the world. So if God is good and he loves us, which we know to be true, then I, I would submit to you that he probably wouldn't create laws that were impossible to keep or unfair to his children. So it would follow that sin is not unavoidable. Number two, or sorry, number three, sin is not genetic. 
Sin is not genetic. It's my belief that we weren't predisposed to sin. In other words, sin wasn't passed down from generation to generation. I'm not a sinner because my parents are sinners. I'm a sinner because faced with the ultimate choice, I chose incorrectly. Uh, that's just a very brief flyover. If you have any questions, you can talk to Scroggins. You're welcome. Number, uh, so that's what sin is not. Okay, let's look what, at what sin is very quickly. Number one, sin is universal. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From the beginning of humanity, each and every one of us has chosen to live supremely for his or her own happiness. There's only one person in the history of the world who's lived a life devoid of sin, and unfortunately for us, it's not anybody in this room. So we know this, that sin is universal. We, have all, we all messed up. Number two, sin is original. And these words are important. If you're thinking Augustine, then we're going the wrong direction. What I mean by that is that sin is originated. In other words, it's created when each of us choose ourselves over God. There's no such thing as sin apart from a sinner. It's created when we choose incorrectly. Sin is not primarily the things you do. It's a state of will. It's, it's that choice that we talked about. It's a choice of a strong ultimate end in life, and it's intent and purpose wrongfully, and here's the key word, selfishly directed. A quick definition for sin would be this. It's denying God his right to be God in your life. Sin is denying God his right to be God in your life. And the key word there is selfishness. Uh, I think in our, our selfish quest to, to deny God his right to be God in our lives, hilariously, this is often done in the name of our own happiness. But what's ironic about that is there can't be any true happiness apart from God. And as such, he's created two conditions for human happiness. You could call them the two laws of human happiness. These are two things that if we don't have them, happiness is not possible. And as we go forward, it'll be very clear why a lot of people in the world are unhappy. Number one, we have to have common understanding. Common understanding. We live in a time where moral relativism is king. Uh, our generation... All of us here, our generation didn't come up with this. We're not smart enough. But uh, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. These are not new ideas. But I think that uh, probably our generation has adopted this belief on a level that we haven't seen in a very long time. What's happened is that truth has become subjective. In other words, what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. And as long as you leave my truth alone and I leave your truth alone, we can coexist, as the bumper stickers say. But the problem with this is that subjective truth cannot and will not allow for common understanding. When truth is constantly shifting and changing with the tide of popular opinion, then we have no chance for agreement. Uh, it's said of our generation that we use technology to participate in the chaotic, diverse world around us, and we live one major civil rights and humanitarian crisis to the next. I think our generation is really good at a few things. We're really good at using technology, we've been given a gift of technology that other generations haven't had. It's been around pretty much as long as we've been alive. And in an instant, I can know what's happening on the other side of the world. So we're very good at seeking out or revealing needs in the world. But unfortunately, we're also really good at holding on to perceived rights. And Scroggins talked about this uh, earlier in this semester. If you missed that Tuesday, I'd invite you to go on our YouTube channel and watch it. But what's happened is that we've all decided to make ourselves the center of the universe instead of Jesus. 
And that's what happens when, we, when, we, uh, when subjective truth creeps in, is maybe not uh, out loud or obviously, but in our heart of hearts, we've made ourselves the center instead of Jesus. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? And it's a, it's a small scale example, but if we're not uh, in agreement on where we're going, it's impossible for us to get there together. We see that without ultimate objective truth, there can't be true happiness. When we can't agree in our limited earthly knowledge, there's only one place to go for the source of capital T, ultimate truth, and we know that that's God and his word. So the first thing there is common understanding. The second thing we need for human happiness is common unselfishness, common unselfishness. We know that knowledge in and of itself is not enough. We have to put into action the truth that God has shared with us. It isn't good enough just to know what is right. We must also be willing to do what is right. But we see that underneath rights and wrongs and all of these uh, choices that we're faced with in life is this underlying concept of value. God created us to seek out and choose that which we perceive to be the most valuable. The problem is that when we don't understand the reality of God's kingdom and his character, we most, almost always choose uh, selfishly what is best for ourselves. I think if, uh, if we're going to be effective as a campus ministry, if we're going to do what Jesus has asked us to do, we have to learn to be unselfish. The end of every friendship, the end of every marriage, the end of every ministry starts with two words, me first. But here's the thing, when we start to truly understand who God is and he reveals his character to us and we start to uh, have the reality that's been there the whole time revealed to us, that we understand that God is the most valuable being in the universe. Uh, we could spend an entire sermon series just unpacking why that's true. But where that leads us is to the most important law of all, God's law of love. Our good friend, Winky Prattney, talks about this. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along with me, and I'll highlight some things. But he says, why then should we love God? Because he is the altogether lovely. Why should all men and women choose to put God first? Because he is the most valuable one in the universe, and he is not selfish. He chooses only what he sees and knows in infinite wisdom to be the most valuable object in the universe, the incomparable value of his own uncreated being, the foundation of all reality. He is not just important because he says so. He actually is the most important one there is. When the Bible calls him good, it means something. God is good because he has always done what is best and always will. His law is founded in his being, not his will. It is not, therefore, arbitrary. God's not just making up rules for the sake of rules or just for fun. These rules are, are sprung from his character and who he is. His being is distinct from his will, and its infinite value obligates his will. This is important. Therefore, God himself has a law to keep. God himself has a law to keep. Love is not just something he made up or invented. It is the way of supreme intelligence, the way God chooses to live, and the way he asks us all to choose likewise. What's cool is that we see that God doesn't live outside of the reality he created. 
Obviously, he's not bound by it in the same way we are, but that's because he's infinite and we are not. But this law of love is so important. We know from our definition of love that you've heard us say over and over again, because repetition is the price of knowledge, that love is choosing unselfishly for the highest good of God and his kingdom. If we're going to have common understanding, if we're going to have common unselfishness, then we have to learn to love one another. So because laws, uh, God's laws are descriptions of reality, there's always consequences when we break them. You could say it this way, you don't break God's laws, God's laws break you. Uh, if they were, uh, we, we know that there has to be consequences because otherwise they wouldn't be laws, they would be more like suggestions, right? Our sinful rebellion we see brings with it consequences that affect each part of our being that we talked about at the beginning. It affects our bodies, it affects our souls, and it affects our spirits. It affects our bodies because when sin entered the world, now we have a deterioration of our bodies and disease. It affects our souls because all of a sudden selfishness allows us to become filled with pride and unbelief. We, we choose to live apart from God, thinking that we can do whatever we want and there won't be any consequences. And it affects our spirits. We become open to spiritual darkness and demonic work. And we see that ultimately, this affects all of our society and the entire world. When each one of us chooses a life of sin, our society starts to break down and give way to more and more sin and worldliness. And we know where this leads. Ultimately, the consequences of sin is death and separation from God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that it doesn't stop there. Romans 6.23 continues, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that God in his infinite love for us sent his son to live a holy and sinless life, to be a perfect example for us, showing us that it's possible to live life always choosing love over selfishness. We know Jesus became a blameless sacrifice so that we could have the chance to choose rightly again. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, we saw that. Sin is universal. But universally, we are all offered a chance again because of Jesus. He took our place, he paid our, sin, our penalty, and he bore our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. So what is it that Jesus is asking us to do? He's asking us to give up our rebellion against the reality of God's kingdom. Really, when we choose apart from God, what we are is rebels. We have to admit that we've sinned and, chose, and choose to forsake the selfish reality that we've attempted to create for ourselves. And we have to leave sin behind, vowing to choose to love, to choose to uh, unselfishly for the highest good of God and his kingdom. Romans 10, verse 9 through 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I think if you're here tonight and either you don't know Jesus yet, or maybe as we've been talking, the, the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that your version or picture of Jesus doesn't match up to who he really is, then an easy way uh, to rectify that is to talk to the person that brought you or your small group leader. I guarantee you they've shared these things with you before, but they would love to do it again. Ask them who Jesus is to them. Who is Jesus to them? Ask them how has he changed their life? 
What's the difference in their life when they chose apart from God? And how has he changed them now that they've chosen to live life with God, obeying his laws and living in real, true reality? I think uh, if we're going to reconcile people to Jesus on our campus, if we're going to be effective, then we need to learn to do a few things. I think that we need to live a holy life set apart from the world. And Jonathan talked about this in LTC this year. But we see it in Luke 9, verse 62. It says, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? I think that means that nowhere in the Bible do we see that God expects us to go back to sin once we've given it up. We're obviously fallible and we make mistakes, but with the help of Jesus, we can live a life of victory over sin. Jonathan said it, and I'll say it again, it's possible to live a godly life and a holy life through the help of Jesus. And I think this is important because there's so many people on our campus that don't understand the reality of God's kingdom. They don't fully understand yet what their sin is doing to themselves or to the people around them. Uh, The question is, how can we show them a picture of what true freedom looks like in a relationship with Jesus if we are still living in bondage to the same sins that they are? We have to learn to live a holy life. Number two, we have to become standard bearers of God's truth. Uh, I think it's my opinion that the college campus or university campus is one of the most strategic mission fields in the world. If you're like me, then when I came to college, it was the time where I had left my parents, I was out from under their wing, and I was deciding who I was going to be and what I was going to believe. And it wasn't because of what my parents were saying, it was because I was seeking out truth. And there's so many people on a college campus that are doing just that. They're seeking out truth. But in a world full of subjective, selfish truths, we are the ones that have to be directing people to God and to his word. We have to be standard bearers of God's truth. And then we also need to learn to live unselfishly. The worship team can go ahead and come back up. But we know that the opposite of selfishness is love. And the only way that we're going to have a culture of common unselfishness, the only way we're going to have a common understanding, and the only way we're going to walk towards Jesus together and be effective as a ministry and do what Jesus has asked us to do is if we learn to love one another. In the Bible, Jesus says that you'll know my disciples by the way that they love one another. What would happen if a watching world, if our campus looked at us and saw the way that we treated each other? And they saw what was different, and they saw the image of God on each one of us that we all carry, and they were drawn to Jesus because of it. We have to learn to live unselfishly. I think what we're going to do is the worship team is going to play. We're going to have a time of, uh, of worship, but I'd encourage you to get alone with Jesus. There's altar space. We've got a lot of space to spread out in the sanctuary, but I think all of us, including myself, have to ask ourselves some questions. The first question we have to ask is, am I living in reality? Am I living in reality? Or am I actively disobeying God's laws? Number two, am I living in sin? I think one of the the most incredible parts of small group to me is that we get to walk together towards Jesus. And sin has the most uh, bondage over your life when you keep it to yourself and you don't Uh, ask for help from your brothers and sisters. That's what small group is for, so that we could be honest and vulnerable with one another, and we can walk towards Jesus together, helping each other give up a life of sin. 
I think an easy way to, to pinpoint what's going on in your life is to ask, am I living selfishly? Maybe uh, we, we all do this, and, but maybe there's small ways that you haven't seen that the Holy Spirit could reveal to you that you're living selfishly and therefore hurting people around you as a result. And lastly, am I a standard bearer of God's truth? When my coworkers, when my classmates, when my friends on campus think of me, do they think of somebody who lives a life that's different, a life that points towards Jesus? Are we being good stewards of the image of God that he's given us? You guys can go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have time to get alone with Jesus. And I think we just need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to put his finger on these things, and to help us answer all these questions honestly. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you that even though we often choose to forsake the reality you created and pretend like it's not true, even though we've all chosen selfishly and poorly, Jesus, we thank you that we have a second chance. Because you're good, because you love us, because you sacrificed yourself for us, Jesus, thank you that even now you sit at the right hand of the Father and you're, you're drawing men and women to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you've invited us to be a part of that work. Lord, we pray that in each of these areas you would help us. Jesus, help us to love one another the way that you first loved us. God, would you help us to be standard bearers for your truth, to live in, in the reality you've created, obeying your laws, Jesus, would you help us to live a life devoid of sin? Jesus, holy and set apart, a picture to the world of what it looks like to walk in freedom with you, Jesus. God, we thank you that you're going to help us. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us each other to do this with, that we can walk alongside each other towards you, Jesus, to see our campus reconciled to you and changed for all eternity. God, we thank you. Would you be with us tonight? We love you, Jesus.